make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. Oh, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, never been banned from Facebook or YouTube, never been sabotaged or censored for politely expressing a difference of opinion, ex-Muslim host Ina, keeping it non-controversial. Welcome to episode 30. I have got a very special guest here with me today, and it took some serious work to coordinate this. It's been, what, like a year in the making, I think? I've been trying to schedule this conversation. Um, I've got Raza Rumi, Pakistani journalist and TV anchor, an outspoken liberal who was attacked by gunmen in 2014 in Lahore for his harsh criticism of the Taliban and other extremist groups, Islamism in general. Sadly, he had to leave for understandable safety reasons, and now he lives in the U.S. Hi, Raza. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. I know you're a really busy guy. Thank you so much for uh, asking me to uh, join you. And uh, yes, it did take some work, but finally it's happening, so I'm happy with that. Yeah. Um, so, so tell me now, what are your thoughts on on what's been going on lately in Pakistan? This whole Mashal Khan lynching. Uh, you know, a student was accused of blasphemy in, in a university, and then a, a mob of what thousands of people came to just attack him. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, whatever has been happening. Uh, I mean, it is both very disturbing and extremely sad at a at a sort of um, you know personal and human level mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you know Mashal Khan, twenty six year old bright humanist, self declared secularist, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean he's uh, sort of targeted for being a quote unquote blasphemer, and then he's not actually attacked by you know mullahs or uh, extremist Taliban group, but by university students Mm -hmm. with um, the university, some members of the administration allegedly complicit in the murder. And so you see, it is uh, is disturbing at so many levels Mm -hmm. that uh, you can actually lynch someone in broad daylight and that it happens in a university and that it is, uh, you know, uh, so-called young men who are getting educated in, in higher education, in social sciences, etc. And they can actually be so brutal. So I think uh, it's a much deeper problem that Pakistan is going through. And it's not just Pakistan, but it's also many other countries in the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. Uh, where such radicalization is turning into a norm. and uh, But, you know, let's focus on Pakistan because that is what I'll be more comfortable about mm-hmm. talking. And, you know, in Pakistan, uh, since uh, the 19, late 70s, you know, we have uh, really uh, changed our education system and curricula and made it uh, more and more, uh, I mean, particularistic, narrower and uh, exclusive, which otherizes the non-Muslim, otherizes the secular, 
otherizes anyone who thinks differently mm-hmm. than, than the norm. And, uh, and that, I mean, you know, the reasons for that, I would say more are political because Pakistan's elites use Islam as a tool to further their power and to, you know, get a, a stronger hold over society. So politicians use it, the military uses it, the, even people in media use that because, you know, it's always a convenient ploy to invoke, quote-unquote, sacred Islam and do anything under that. Right, and uh, it's such a it's such a easy tool to use, too, because it's something that people, you know, believe with all their hearts, and it's easy to manipulate people once you invoke that religious sentiment, right? Like you can Exactly exactly well put because you know let's face it most societies in the world are religious by you know I mean that's the way human history has evolved and the, with the rise of organized religions and clergies you know people tend to People are born into those uh, mindsets, and then they are very, you know, they, they take religion very personally. Right. But, uh, but it's a state which then says, hey, guys, you believe whatever you want to believe in. We are neutral. We are secular. And, uh, you know, we will maintain uh, public order and we will not yeah. let people attack each other. Right. Mm-hmm. But when state becomes a party, like Pakistani state has become a party to debates on, uh, you know, who is a Muslim, who's not a Muslim, who's a good Muslim, mm-hmm. and supposed to be Islamic. And the constitution is, you know, we call ourselves Islamic Republic of Pakistan. And, you know, cynic state is neither Islamic nor a republic, nor a democracy. <laughs> but that aside, so it's a it's a role of the state. And, you know, let me tell you before, Mashal Khan and, and you, because you follow this uh, very closely as well. And I I see your tweets all the time. So since January, the, the state has been uh, orchestrating a campaign against so-called um, blasphemous material. On right. Social. The Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif uh, asked for removal of blasphemous content from online. So, I mean... In a way, exactly. he's contributing to that environment directly. Where Yes, and the parliament passed a resolution, uh, a high court in Islamabad, and then later in Lahore, they directed, hey, remove all the blasphemous material. Who are these people who are bringing Islam into disrepute? As if Islam or Muslims, 1.5 billion, if you please, or 1.6 billion, mm-hmm. Uh, would be endangered and threatened by a handful of Facebook pages, you know? I mean, it's so silly. I don't understand the insecurity, honestly. As someone just, just looking at religion from the outside, I have mm-hmm. never understood it. You know, I grew up in Saudi Arabia and one of the most insecure countries about religion. Yes. So yes. no one else was allowed to practice. There was, you know, censorship in, you know, in the Bollywood movies, you'd see like a scene being cut out and being replaced with images of flowers. Yes. And yes. that was like, you know, supposedly where a Hindu god was making an appearance. And even as a kid, I just didn't understand what is what is the need? If you are so secure in your faith, you don't need to like hide other religions existence from from people, right? You should be yeah. strong enough to withstand simply the existence of other ideas. Yes, absolutely. And I think I think part of it has to do uh, with the, you know, with with history because as you know, the Arab Empire 
flourished after Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, existed, and then they conquered Persia. They, uh, you know, they, they got into Spain. They reached as close as to Vienna, and you know, all Central Asia, India, Southeast Asia. So it was a huge empire, and I think in that, and then there's a whole history of uh, battles with Christianity, you know, in the form of Crusades, etc. And I think that is when this whole narrative uh, started to build up that to keep uh, power, political power, you had to play this insecurity card. And that has gone into the sort of, you know, collective memory and mm-hmm. psyche of, uh, of Muslim societies, and particularly the clerics, because, you know, at that time, the theologians or, or those who craft uh, theology, you know, mm-hmm. um, they were in the service of the of the Arab Empire, and they came up with all these ideas of, of, of uh, insecurity and, you know, uh, b- because that was a response. You know, it's it's not too different from, let's say, what the American, uh, I mean, by, by that I mean the, the, the U.S. Uh, government keeps on saying about the national security threat. You know, everything is a threat to America. You know, UFOs are a threat. Yeah, yeah but I mean, like, things are allowed to exist. Other opinions are allowed to exist. There's like... I agree. I agree. I mean, there, there, there I can't disagree with you. But having said that, I mean, you know, it's a need of the empire. So they... They, I'm, 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 you know, and that's the most surprising part that, you know, over time, Muslims have become more and more inward looking. I mean, if you look at, you know, Islamic Spain, for example, so much of inquiry into philosophy, history, yeah. uh, sciences, astronomy, you know, that cannot take place without questioning, without Right, reason. exactly. They're holding progress back. I mean, if you... It- Exactly. So if we have in the last, uh, let's say, uh, few centuries, we have really regressed and we've mm-hmm. become looking. We are stuck to the 11th, 10th and 11th century texts, thinking that they are sacred. They're all a man-made, you know, uh, Muslim uh, intellectuals and thinkers. Uh, some of them try their best, but by and large, these societies have stagnated. And, that, and this is why you will see that despite so much wealth, and clout and power I mean how many Muslim scientists can you think of you know other than say a, a couple here or, or a couple there mm-hmm. and those flourish they, they actually do when they are in western societies when they migrate yeah. and find kind of academic freedoms or, or how many how many, uh, you know, writers or artists you, you can think of? Because, you know, these societies kind of, uh, by regressing, they curb uh, freedom of thought. Right, and creativity as well. But, you know, one thing I saw when I lived in Pakistan briefly is that there was like a very amazing, thriving art scene that was kind of underground. And, you know, there was so much fantastic creativity in there but sadly it just doesn't get the exposure that it deserves because yeah but but you know that is the whole that is the whole um, uh, problem here that it is not just pakistan i mean pakistan has you know as we speak we just spoke about mashal khan but at the same time paradoxically pakistan has a very you know a thriving music industry yeah. you know 
out of pain comes like this beautiful creativity sometimes and and great artists who are making their mark globally i mean you know they go in it and they get exhibited uh, all over the world they hold exhibitions you have uh poets and you have writers and you have uh, you know so all and same is the case with egypt same same is the case so this is the case when they are fighting this uphill battle against their entire country's system basically so imagine what it could have been like if people were to support them generally you know it could have been magnificent Exactly, exactly. So going back to that whole uh, debate, uh, you know, so the state and and not just that, you know, going back to Mashal Khan's lynching, and it was not just that the prime minister said that, then they issued notices, you know, in the newspapers and on, on television. If you find any blasphemous material, report it to this number. Yeah, that's horrifying. To, yeah. To it's the like launch. 1984 kind of. Totally, totally 1984 and uh, and to law enforcement agencies, you know, like the FBI equivalent in Pakistan, mm-hmm. FIA. And so, you know, you know how easy it is to doctor images. I mean, I can post anything. Uh, I mean, I can take a screenshot and, and doctor it and say that you have posted this, uh, this thing. <laughs> Except you. I openly blaspheme anyway, so you don't I have know. to doctor it. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. I don't can understand. I can I call you a serial blasphemer then? <laughs> please do, please do. <laughs> I'm joking, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> I make my parents very proud. Not, not really, they're not thrilled about that part. I, I, I bet, I bet. <laughs> but yes. they're okay, they're okay. Um, so what I was going to say is that I find it shocking that there are any supporters at all for this because you can see how quickly it can be used against anyone. Like we had a preacher, uh, you know, Junaid Jamshed. He he used to be a pop star, but then he became a, you know, an evangelist type preacher guy. And he was accused of blasphemy. Like at the drop of a hat, anybody can be accused of blasphemy. Like he was a right wing, hardcore religious guy and he had to flee as well. He's no longer with us because he died in a in a plane crash. But he, he even he wasn't spared from blasphemy accusations. Yes, poor guy, you know. Yeah, and he had to leave the country. I think for many months he was yeah. in the UK, and that's also ironic because you know uh, a lot of uh, uh, the the preachers think that Western societies are all evil yeah. and you know, they have loose morals. But, <laughs> but that's where they go when they want to be safe. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, ironically, because we were talking about the prime minister, so Pakistan's prime minister attended the Hindu holy festival, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, last month. And there he actually made a very good speech about tolerance and about um, etc, etc. And, you know, uh, and even uh, his speech there, because he said, oh, well, you know, Hindus believe in a Bhagwan and we believe in Allah. And basically, you know, uh, we must uh, respect each other's faiths or whatever we believe in. And people in Pakistan even accused him of blasphemy. That he, <laughs> you know, that's the whole irony. Here's the prime minister directing the law enforcement. Hey, don't do this, you know. And prime minister gets... You know, so as you rightly said, it's such an open and, uh, uh, you know, vague concept uh, that can be easily abused. Or even just used, I think it can be used against anyone. I don't even think there's a, you know, we might differ in opinion here, but I don't think there's a legitimate use for this law at all, ever. 
yeah so true so true and and i think i think you know this is uh, this is a real uh, sort of crisis and uh, and you know interestingly pakistan's blasphemy laws actually originally as you know were drafted by the british when right they were, right right and that's another irony but you so, see they've moved on it's yeah. time for us to do that also Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they were they were ruling a large number of natives, you know, who were of different faiths and they had to keep public order like all colonists do. But once you get independent as a as an independent nation, then you uh, want to create a nice, tolerant uh, I mean, nice is a crazy word. Yeah, tolerant and a and a, you know, plural society. And. Instead of doing that, you know, we uh, we have regressed and we made the blasphemy laws tighter and stringent, and now they are, as you said, used and and abused. You know, women have been, couples have been burned. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, there's a very uh, there's a really smart young professor in Multan who has been languishing in jail again because his his colleagues reported on him accusing him, him him of blasphemy and there was a case filed and he's in jail and then his lawyer who was pleading on his behalf was also murdered oh my gosh yeah, it's this just crazy yeah. it's crazy it's like uh, you know I heard Imran Khan uh, say um, it was like a jungle law yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So the politicians, they say these empty words, but I feel like they also contribute to it because even he has been guilty of, uh, I think, some yes. anti ahmadi sentiment. Right. And yeah, yeah anti ahmadi sentiment and some some really uh, controversial statements he made in favor of the Taliban. Yeah, so, that's right. <laughs> yeah, he has been saying all these things, you know, unfortunately. But having said that, the, what he did say about Mashal Khan was pretty uh, kind of... Um, encouraging yeah yeah and uh, you know it was uh, so for a change we were kind of uh, uh, we felt relaxed that you know at least some leader is going to call for change in his blasphemy laws and you know as they say every tragedy has an underlying or hidden opportunity so mashal khan's murder did make the parliament pass a resolution condemning his murder and also asking for review of the blasphemy laws so that they are not, uh, you know, abused. I mean, you know, ideally speaking, such laws in this day and age should be done away with. But in Pakistan, at least, even if we talk of reform, it's a Yeah, baby steps, yeah. I see you on Twitter sometimes trying to, you know, convince your audience, your Pakistani Twitter audience, that secularism isn't an abandonment of religion. It's simply a separation of mosque and state. But, you know, even that is such a hard concept to drive home because people are so attached to their religious identity. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. You know, I'll tell you that I have to keep on telling these guys that this is not about, uh, you know, religion or atheism, because, you know, uh, secularism is is all about state being a neutral party mm-hmm. and trying to create a society where violence in the name of religion is prohibited and discouraged and punished. 
you yeah. know? And, and, you know, in Pakistan, uh, the problem is, and, and, and not just Pakistan, but also in other, uh, some other countries in the Muslim world, the term secular was translated as uh, ladin or irreligious uh-huh. or anti-religion. Oh, yeah. And it's, a, it's actually a twisted interpretation of, reli- of secularism because, you see, for example, the, the version of secularism in the United States Mm -hmm. or let's say the UK or even Canada is a very multicultural idea. Yeah. Letting faiths bloom or people believing or not believing whatever they want to, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is maybe the French case of secularism is a bit different way where they're more aggressively implementing a certain agenda. Yeah, I have my disagreements with that version as well, yeah. Exactly, and that's why that, that... that uh, generates a lot of uh, reaction. But, but you know, uh, and this twisted interpretation of secularism sadly is believed widely because the secularists have always been uh, sort of on the back foot uh, in front of the Islamists. And, and as I told you, that the politicians and, and the generals in Pakistan used Islam as a tool and uh, for for their political power and so secularists have always found themselves on the back foot re- retreating and even people like Bhutto who ruled Pakistan in 1970s mm-hmm. I mean he's the one who passed the anti-Ahmadi right and he was a secularist yeah himself. but he was trying to appease the mullahs right there you go, there you go. Exactly. exactly but that didn't work out very well for him no, it did not work out at all. They yes. turned on him. So yep. there's no negotiating with mullahs. I mean, especially throwing an entire group of people under the bus now. They still suffer, right? Like, mm-hmm. we can't get a, a Pakistani passport without signing a document that says that we denounce Ahmadis. And, you know, I read the text of that, I think, when I was like 10 or 11. And I was like so confused I was asking my parents, what on earth is this and why, why, you know? Yes, uh, exactly. There was no satisfactory answer. Like, I still I still don't understand what, <laughs> why. It's all, always this theme of insecurity, right? Yes. We yes. cannot wonder how we have these lynchings like Mashal Khan's and then also have a country where the state sanctions this type of bigotry against a faith. Exactly, exactly. It is so, I mean, it is also beyond me, to be honest. Uh, I just, uh, and but, but you know, even at a human level, I mean, okay, fine. What I don't understand is that, you know, if, I mean, Muslims keep on, uh, and, I, and I consider myself as one of them, keep on saying, you know, we believe in peace and we are a uh, faith of peace and, you know, mm. murder of one person is murder of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> All of that, but then how can they actually go out and do these barbaric lynchings all in the name of faith? Then obviously, obviously something is going wrong in the way they see. Yeah, my guess is that those are not the same people, right? Like, I mean, I have a a scriptural issue with those quotes because I feel like they're not accurately representing. But anyways, that's a different discussion. I think that the people who see it as a religion of peace are just... Uh, you know, they're looking at a very curated, uh, you know, nice version, and that's what they can't reconcile with the violence that they see. However, the people going out there and committing the violence 
are seeing a different version. So it's so vague that it can be interpreted multiple ways. Of course, it can be peaceful for the, all the many, many Muslims who live life peacefully. And it can yes. be non-peaceful for the people committing these acts of violence. So, Exactly. You know, I will tell you, I will give you an example of my own family, you know, and I, and I think you will relate to that as well. You know, I come from a fairly religious family, particularly, you know, my mother is a, is a practicing uh, Muslim who prays five times and fasts in the in, mm-hmm. in, Ramzan, her brothers and sisters are also like that. And, you know, my father, you know, he's the one who, who used to take us to Sufi shrines, etc. So they're Sufis? Well, yeah, they, they are inclined towards the Sufi, uh, uh, you know, sort of ideas. Yeah, my family too, actually. Exactly. But that's the majority. That's that's the majority in South Asia. Majority but it's becoming demonized at a very fast pace. They're seeing Sufism as a form of... Uh, of a of a, a heretic uh, sort of Islam, yes, like where only Wahhabism is the purest, most rigid form. Yes, yes, exactly, and that comes, you know, from the uh, mostly from the Wahhabi ideas uh, from Saudi, Saudi Arabia, yeah. Uh, basically, so um, but I'm telling you that you know, uh, so so they they fast and they pray, and you know they they are God fearing and they do all the things that right you know the rituals. But I have never you know, and that's why even this thing uh, affects me so much uh, that I never heard anyone in my extended family ever justifying any level of violence. In fact, whenever the idea of, you know, they would say, oh, this person has, is insulting to uh, one of the religious figures or the text, and they would say, oh, well, you know, uh, we should ignore that because that's what the Quran says, you know. So it's it's about how you, <clears throat> how you interpret the... It's well, a lot of cherry-picking, yeah. <laughs> cherry-picking also, yeah, true, true, yeah. true. Yeah, I mean, my family also is very, they, they are not that religious actually but they are you know people who practice religion so but they're very liberal and they've never kind of forced religion on their kids my parents and we've had you know had open opportunity to question and have debates and you know they they know I'm a non-believer since for half my life and they kind of weren't that surprised because I think they saw it coming from when I was really, really little. I'd be like running away from my Quran teachers. I'd get on my bike and hide and my dad would drive around and try to look for me. So they weren't that surprised. But yeah, so there's a completely different picture in the minds of many, many Muslims. So that's why they always say this has nothing to do with Islam, right? Yes. But I feel that that is actually not helpful if you acknowledge that these people are also inspired by the same thing, then you can actually try to unravel and figure out the problem. Right now, it's just a case of blind denial. I feel like this nothing to do, nothing to do with us, nothing to do with Islam is not helping anything. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I, but you know, this is a this is a debate we should have once again. You know, okay, we'll do it again. <laughs> Theology, texts, you know, the interpretations. Because my view, just to summarize, my view is that you know, like any other group of people or community, you know, the way, uh, and I've written uh, quite a bit on this as well. I mean, within Muslims, there's so much diversity. You yeah. know. 
So, and uh, and the thing is that, you know, over the centuries, Muslims uh, have uh, defined themselves in different ways, imagined themselves in different ways. What we are seeing, uh, particularly in the last few decades, since, uh, you know, the decolonization in the Middle East and decolonization in South Asia and parts of Africa, what we are actually seeing, uh, seeing is a kind of a post-colonial experience of these societies in reconciling, you know, uh, and coming to terms with the with their brutal colonial past, and also <clears throat> a kind of uh, fear of modernity. And, uh, sure, but where does that fear of modernity come from? Yeah, so I, I guess I guess that that basically comes in, uh, you know, because <clears throat> because the idea of modernity is so rooted in the uh, Western world, and remember that the Western world, uh, I mean, the Western, particularly Western Europe, I mean, I, I'm not, not including Canada because Canada's a do-gooder, but, you know, much of Western Europe was a uh, barbaric colonist. I mean, you know... Sure, yeah, 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 but, like, things yeah. have changed now. There's secularism yeah. and, you know, a fight yeah. for the equality uh, for minorities. We don't we don't have that in yeah. the Muslim world. But, but, you know, it takes time. Now, of look course. At Africa, you know, much of Africa was liberated, you know, in the 50s and 60s. You know, Pakistan, India got freed, uh, became uh, new states in 47. And in the span of, of, of history, this is not too long a time, you know. Let's also see that. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. And also out of all the Abrahamic religions, I do acknowledge that Islam is the newest one. Has yeah. had the least time to, you know... Uh, dilute itself and modernize yes. and so I do get exactly. I do get that but and, you know no and you know I'm not an apologist I mean I'm not no, uh, I know uh, you know I'm not saying that violent extremist or a violent uh, mullah or a violent uh, militant uh, why they're going it I mean you know yes there is politics there but you know certain kinds of um, violence we just have to must not have any place under any circumstances you know that's mm-hmm. a kind of uh, opening banner but at the same time i you know living in the united states for the last 3 years it's it's been exactly 3 years now yeah. I have realized that, you know, there is such little awareness, you know, of uh, the Muslims and the Islamic world or the Muslim world. And it's a very black and white projection. Well, this is also the fault of kind of well-intentioned Western liberals who kind of conflate Muslim identity with a conservative Muslim identity. So if you see all the narratives in the (laughs) global papers, it's always like, you know, hijab is feminism and I love hijab. And, you know, it's always conflating Muslim with conservative Muslim. So I I do wish that they would take some diverse Muslim perspectives because there are a lot, a lot of different types of Muslims. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you have a range from a niqab to hijab to dupatta to chadar to no no chadar to Western dresses. To shorts, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's all there. And they all exist in the Islamic and Muslim spectrum. And you're, you're right. I mean, to that extent, I fully agree with you that, you know, it is narrowing down of a particular conservative identity. And you think that is how Muslims are, then, then it's a real disservice to Muslims uh, and to the West itself. Exactly. 
But I was going to say something about violence here that, you know, look, since 9-11, and 9-11 was a a monstrous uh, act, Mm. you know, against uh, innocent civilians and against, uh, you know, let's say a beautiful city like New York. Uh, But, you know, the response to 9-11 has been so disproportionate uh, by uh, by the U.S. and NATO allies, that it and and there is such little appreciation of that. So, for instance, you know, okay, Afghanistan uh, was invaded immediately after 9/11, a few months later, because Bin Laden was supposed to be there. But you know, thereafter, a false uh, and a you know, ba- on the basis of fake and doctored or sexed up evidence, Iraq was invaded, and. You know, to to date, more than half a million Iraqis are dead, you know, and and a lot of them are dead not because there's been sectarian violence or, you know, there's been uh, intra-Muslim wars, but they have died because of, you know, a crumbling or a decimated state with not having, you know, electricity, not having heating in the winter, dislocation, you know, hunger, and, you know, half a million or more than half a million people. And there's little awareness. Of course, the Western uh, bleeding heart liberals do. Uh, here in America also say a lot about that. Yeah. But at the mass level, uh, there is no such... Well, like, yeah, I mean, they just elected Trump. So. Yeah, yeah they, they just did that. And then and then you look at Libya. Again, a state... Okay, fine, Gaddafi, I, I, I hold no grief for him. I think Gaddafi was a real, uh, really um, monstrous dictator. But then you actually destroy a whole state and a country and you leave it open as a playing field of Islamic State. And now Islamic State and Al-Qaeda have made bases there, right? So in a way, these policies have also fed... Uh, of course, the, there's no denying that there are different yeah. contributions. And, you know, of course, in hindsight, your vision is always yeah. better. I don't think the intent was to create ISIS Yes, yes. No, no. The intent was not that. I'm not suggesting that at all. But what I'm trying to suggest here is that a lot of these faulty, uh, you know, war and national security policies by by NATO countries have not helped this whole thing. And this idea of radicalization, going back to Mashal Khan and why these young people, you know, not just in Pakistan, but let's say in Egypt or, or other countries, you know. And the problem is that these... Uh, narratives feed into into the larger uh, you know narrative that is propagated by uh, they hate us yeah. yeah they hate us and they say they hate us you know yeah uh, uh, or what is also known as uh, one of my academic friends was telling me catastrophic convergence so basically you know trump wants uh, to ban all muslim terrorists and all Muslims want to ban the evil, <clears throat> you know, Westerners. You know what I'm saying? Ha- a ban or harm or whatever. But there's such an extreme polarization right now. It's really something I haven't seen before. It's, you yes. know, I could very comfortably say to people that, you know, look, racism is in sharp decline in the West at yes. one point. And I can yeah. say we have it so much better and this is an improving problem. And you can see that this is a, a sign that you can change people's minds and ideology collectively in a society can shift. However, now 
it's at a sharp rise again. So, so I don't really know where that's headed, where we're going. Um, the far right and the alt right rising and converging with all sorts of uh, movements is, is it's terrifying to me. Yeah, and, and so they feed the Islamists, and the Islamists feed them, and they hate each other, and they both they both just grow and grow and grow. And where are we gonna end up? You know, will we have to pick a side, like between Nazis and uh, jihadis? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm I'm only laughing at the uh, at your uh, at your nicely worded uh, you know metaphors. <laughs> But, you know, yes, and I think it's a big dilemma that you, that people like us, you know, who basically want uh, a kind of a, a more peaceful and a tolerant world, um, you know, and, uh, and uh, this is why, you know, I used to be very wary of... Um, the term Islamophobia a few years ago, you know? Yeah. And I used to say, oh, well, you know, this is another excuse, you know. But the thing is that I have now seen it happen and unfold in front of me here in the United, in the United States. I know majority of Americans are not like that. Remember, the, the, the majority still voted for Hillary Clinton. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so, so we can't generalize. But a noisy and influential section... Which is which is dominant in let's say media narratives, in uh, in in the political narratives, that actually uh, churns out deeply Islamophobic stuff. So saying all my only problem with that is just the term. Like I understand what sentiment you're getting at, and that terrifies me as well. But I just prefer to call it anti-Muslim bigotry, simply because yeah. Yeah, the word okay. Islamophobia, I feel it just gives conservative Muslims a very big shield so that don't touch our religious beliefs and don't ever criticize them. Otherwise, you're an Islamophobe. Well, as Shakespeare said, you know, what's in a term, uh, what's in a name. So, I mean, we can we can name it anything. I mean, yeah. I know Islamophobia has a has a peculiar uh, dimension, but. I what I'm trying to say here is that you know it is it is this this feeding of each other that in a way Islamophobia and Islamism you know if you, if we were to t- treat them as very broad uh, and strip them of the political uh, sort of um, dimensions uh, you know they, they feed into each other so every statement that let's say a far right leader in Europe makes is music to ISIS yes yes. Exactly. They celebrate Trump and Marine Le Pen. Yeah. And they say, see, we've been telling you, this is how these evil non-Muslim Christians are. And also people on the Western far right, they celebrate every Muslim attack almost. They are salivating because they just want to pin it on Muslims. I've seen, you know, like the Quebec mosque shooting when people thought it was a Muslim attack or the, the far righters came out and... You know, they tweeted about it. They were almost like giddy with excitement that they could pin another attack on Muslims. And yes. then it turned out to be a far writer. And then they kind of went silent. So yes. so it, ha- it works both ways. And it's horrific. It just increases that polarization. So and I and I think I think, you know, at uh, at some level. Uh, whether overtly or not so overtly, there's also a race racial dimension to it. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. 
And, uh, you know, because, for example, some lives are meant to be uh, more uh, important than the others. So the white white lives are are better than brown and <laughs> brown are better than black. And black well, that's the whole BLM yes. movement, yes. right? Yes. Um, so, so look at, for example, again, I would go back to the Middle East. Uh, and, and I'm just saying this because, you know, look, at I, I've met so many Syrians here, you know, not just refugees, but also people who have been living here in, in, in the U.S. And that's a great thing of... Being here, that you know, it is a you know, it it allows you for a diverse engagement, um, and you know, they, uh, you know, they, Syria was uh, before this this turmoil was a regular secular country, you know. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, and I think that that there was even like a hijab ban or a niqab ban. I can't remember exactly, but one of those things happened in government offices. I think. Yes, something. Uh, yeah, I've also read about it. But 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 what I'm what I'm trying to tell you is that in the Western media or Western imagination, in the la- only in the last four or five years, half a million Syrians are dead. Nearly, you know, the Guardian estimated it to be nearly half a million, and uh, other estimates say there are four hundred thousand deaths. You know, since last four or five years, and yes. A lot of that is the responsibility of Bashar al-Assad, mm. right? But a lot of it is also due to the fact that some dubious rebels against this, the Assad regime have been armed by the Western countries, including factions of al-Qaeda. So imagine the craziness that on one hand, there's been a war on terror for 16, 17 years against al-Qaeda, and on the other hand, now to achieve a certain objective, some of those factions are still being armed in Syria. And, and you know, what are they going to do? Okay, they'll, they'll get rid of Assad and are they then going to create an, another Islamic state? So one, it's mind-boggling, you know? So, yeah, it's like a, it's like a web of issues that all feeds yeah. into it, right? It's not yeah. so simple. However, the mm. thing that I, I, I want to drive home also is that People kind of deny uh, religion's role in that, right? They always just pin it on these other factors. So, yeah, I acknowledge that other factors do make a difference. But, you know, I think we also need to acknowledge that there there is a religious element to this that is it's whipping up this frenzy that cannot be whipped up otherwise, because this is something you believe with so much conviction. You think, you know, you're going to go to heaven and... You're going to get virgins or, yeah, yeah. you know, so that, I don't know. I, I'm not discounting that. I think a lot of this radicalization, particularly of these extremist groups, you know, it comes from these, these really twisted and bizarre ideas and, you know, um, some of the holy texts uh, stretched beyond, uh, you know, uh, beyond the limits of reason. I mean, I don't they, think they're stretched. But OK, even even if, suppose they're not stretched and I take your point, you know, but what I'm what I'm saying is that, you know, Western world uh, has not is not helping this either. And that is what I would, you know, through your podcast. Right like to highlight uh, you, yes highlight and because if people are going to, if canadians and americans and everywhere people are going to you know so what do you recommend what is something that is helpful 
do you think? Oh, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> okay, what can the individual do? What can no, I think that I, I think the individuals what they can do is basically pressurize their governments, you know, Western governments. But on an individual level, like just yeah. educate themselves about Muslims yes. and not feed into the far right mania that Trump is causing. Absolutely, absolutely. Number one. Number one thing is that, you know, know more, learn more, read more. You know, Facebook pages, Wikipedia pages, tweets are not a substitute yeah. for knowledge yeah. or insight. Okay, you have to read or you have to watch reasonably uh, sensible documentaries, you know, if you don't like reading. Yeah, here's the thing, though, you know, so so a lot of people, they'll read the religious scriptures, the Islamic religious scriptures, and they'll get terrified by them. Uh, because there are some verses, you know, that sound violent or wh whether you think they're stretched or I think they're not stretched. Mm. I think, but, but what they don't take into consideration is that not everyone is enacting, not everyone is like a Islamic robot enacting each and every verse, right? Like a lot of the Pakistanis that I know, I, I actually know the scripture better than them because, you know, when I was a, a, practicing Muslim, which which didn't last long, but I didn't really bother very much reading about the scripture. I just read the curated versions I was presented. And when people would say that so-and-so hadith exists, I would just not believe it. But so here's the point I'm trying to make is that a lot of Muslims, they, they just don't, they don't know of those violent verses that people are looking at and or those hadith that they're looking at and saying, oh my goodness, is this what Muslims believe in? You know, there's so many yeah. verses like that in the Bible and... You know, you know, we need to have uh, have this detailed conversation because there is, uh, we should, I think, debate and, and discuss this issue as well because, you know, I'll tell you something. I'll give you one example. You know, what has also happened is um, there's a scholar here um, in the U.S. called Amina Wudud. I don't know if you've heard oh, of her. Oh, yeah, she doesn't like me very much. Uh, yeah, well, uh, well, obviously because of your hijab, <laughs> your hijab battles. But anyway, other, I mean, other than that, that, you know, uh, Amina's work, you know, uh, scholarly work, which I'm referring to, and, you know, uh, people are different on social media, you know, social media, that's yeah. the problem with social media is that, you know, it ignites you, it, it uh, agitates yeah. you. You have to respond immediately. You have to get angry, you know. So her scholarly work, so like her, her work, the, uh, her first book is, um, is called The Quran and the Woman. And... Um, she basically, uh, her argument is that um, the, the Quran uh, was written in a classical form of Arabic, which nobody speaks to t today, you know, for centuries now, because Arabic has modernized. Mm -hmm. And and through the centuries, you know, that original ancient uh, Arabic text has been translated into modern Arabic or modern uh, other languages, and that's how we have distilled knowledge and information. So she went back to, so as a part of study, she went back to the roots of the the Arabic used in those days, and she tried to learn mm -hmm. that language. And she discovered that the patriarchal translators in the 9th and the 10th and the 11th centuries had actually changed the meaning, a lot of meanings, and inserted 
things which which you know one of the biggest critiques of uh, uh, on uh, some of the verses is that you know the, about the role of women and how mm-hmm. husbands should treat their wives and all of that and you know we all mm-hmm. uh, grew up and so so she actually kind of challenges that and shows that how some of what we have understood or some of what we have found is actually so disturbingly distorted and now of course it's not easy for i mean it's not for you and me to fix this or whatever but it is surely a a um, kind of uh, food for thought that you know there is there's so much that we need to do with what we understand you know, I mean, just I've come across this argument before. I'm just going to say that, you know, if you if you imagine that this is morality coming from around a thousand years ago, mm. uh, just just knowing that alone, you know that some of those things are going to kind of not fit in to the 21st century. So to say that all of that is just a misinterpretation to me sounds like a sanitization, right? Like, because these issues consistently exist in the bible and in you know in all the abrahamic scriptures sure so sure, sure. exactly exactly they they're they're commonly shared yeah it. so it's not just that you know i i just feel that religion itself is patriarchal and created for men so uh, <laughs> why would the patriarchal scholars not make it suited to them but anyways i don't i don't want to bog us down I, in I, I would i would slightly revise that when i would say that and i would say organized religion by by institutions uh, that emerged from that faith so you know like the clergy like uh, you know and that definitely uh, appears to be mm-hmm. and is very patriarchal mm-hmm. I don't disagree with you here right but, yeah not all religions I mean have you yeah, heard of Satanism <laughs> no because look at I mean you know look at you know one of the most uh, disturbing things to me uh, in the recent years has been the conduct of Buddhist monks you know I grew up uh, you know, kind of praising and idealizing the teachings of Buddha. Right, I see a lot of that too, the sanitization yeah. of that. Yes, and look at the monks in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar. I mean, you know, their whole treatment of, of the minorities there, yeah. you know, the same kind of attacks, lynchings, burning their shops and businesses. And I just feel that poor Buddha, I mean, you know, he must be turning wherever he is in heaven or, or you know, or, or in the air, water. he must be saying, what the hell, what has gone wrong with my my so-called, uh, you know, preachers and monks? Because, you know, it is the organized, when you organize and then create this institution of clergy that collects gold and material and money and, you know, gets land and and asserts power the way they assert power in Pakistan or, uh, or in Egypt or in Turkey, then you know, you lose that kind of um, the spiritual element and only this this shell remains, which is very patriarchal. But can't you, like, just ha- have that spiritual element, like, just, you know, put on some music and uh, light some candles yeah. and oh, sit yeah. down? You don't really need a 2,000-year-old morality for that, do you? 
Well, I would say that, yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say that it depends on person to person. Sure, I, yeah, yeah, I, I take that. You know what I mean? Many yeah. people feel they need religion. I completely yeah. agree. And for them, you know, it's it's hard to exist without that sort of guide. But yes, as you know, what did Walter say that, you know, even, <laughs> even if there were no God, man would have invented one or something like that. So it is it is one of those. It is it is more of a human insecurity. Well, I feel that we're at the point where we can, many of us are letting, like in the West especially, many of us are letting go, right? And you, and you for sure. <laughs> Me for sure. <laughs> yeah. There's no question about it. Though, uh, yeah. I mean, recently yeah. uh, certain uh, certain parts of atheist movement, of course, there's no ideology to atheism. So it's it's not, I can't blame my lack of belief in God for this, but there are certain uh, overlaps with the Trump supporters and the alt-right that kind of make me really, it's not that I, you know, I joke about this all the time, like, oh, I should reconvert. I'm, I should reconvert, but it's, <laughs> I'm really just joking. Um, yeah, I know. I know it's, taken I the, it's kind of taken the fun out of disliking religion for me a little bit. Yeah, but hopefully it's just temporary, you know, because because in an environment where I'm comfortable and I don't have to look over my shoulder that someone is trying to demonize my family, then I can actually comfortably criticize Islam. But in yes. an environment where someone's going to take my words and use it to say that, you know, people like my family and me should be banned, then I'm not comfortable having these criticisms right now. So it's kind of made it very difficult, the Trumpian element. Well, I mean, absolutely tell me about it, you know. I mean, uh, I'm talking to you about these subjects after a very long time. Now I don't now I don't talk a lot in, in uh, at, at public uh, events also because I just feel that I'm kind of tired of this tirade of, uh, you know, uh, otherizing and demonizing a whole group of people, you know, that includes me as well. Right, exactly. Or people like you or yeah. your family. And then there are millions of us, by the way, you know, uh, okay, some are, uh, some were, many are not as outspoken as you are, for example, you know, about their uh, lab, about what they believe in or, 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 or what they don't believe in. But a lot of people are just uh, regular people you know and and they are everywhere in the west they are in, you know they are in egypt they are in pakistan they are in india they are in indonesia and the reality is that all of us are being branded you know in a totally racist fashion mm-hmm. yes yeah. violent i mean my criticisms of hijab exist but when there are actual racists in the street pulling women's hijabs off then obviously if there's no in- yeah that's what i mean so I can't you know, do it. Yeah, exactly. So it makes it very, very hard. You may remember that in New York City, a guy came and tried to uh, set fire to a woman wearing a burqa. Yeah, now, I know, remember something like that. I have issues with burqa, but the question is that I'm not going to go and burn some someone wearing Obviously, a burqa. Obviously, yeah. So because what's the, I mean, it's lynching. It's another form of lynching, you know? Yeah, well, what they're doing is also, if they actually want to lessen Islamic extremism, they're certainly making uh, martyrs out of uh, very conservative Muslims. So they don't yeah. lessen it. They make it sort of heroic. 
Even yeah. these Western far riders, what is their ultimate agenda? If they want to lessen hijabs, then maybe try not making hijabis a symbol of defiance and freedom and, you know, standing up to your bigotry. If you're going to be pulling women's hijabs off, then then there's more of a reason for more people to support the hijab. And Yeah, you see, that's uh, that's why. So a lot of this support actually, you know, is located in this. Uh, you perhaps don't feel that much in Canada because, yes, you have a right uh, wing, uh, strong uh, right wing. Come on, you but, know our friend uh, Tariq Fatah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. I know he's 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 very vocal about this, but but you know, uh, you know, Tariq is a is of Pakistani origin. Although he would uh, don't not... don't say that about him. He'll okay, okay it's South Asian, <laughs> South Asian, Indian origin. He uh, considers it a great insult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just, I, I take my words back. But the question is that. Um, you know, uh, Canada is a, is a is a slightly removed planet from from the rest of the world, also in a way. And uh, in uh, Western Europe and in uh, North America now, increasingly, you know, there's this all of this uh, targeting of uh, Muslims takes place around these issues. You know, I mean, like well, in Canada, we just had the mosque shooting in Quebec where six people yeah, were uh, shot. So I mean, we're getting there as well yeah i hope not i hope i hope that uh, you know good sense prevails but you know otherwise it is going to be you know i get so worried because you you know you just imagine my plight you know in the last few weeks um, at least three indians and i think a sikh have been shot in yeah. the united states right uh, two indians in cancer yeah, one in one near DC or somewhere, and you know, I just wonder that you know, I left Pakistan. I thought I'll be safe. Yes, yes. In the free world, right? Quote unquote free world. Yeah. And now I get a bit panicked because I just feel that this this whole uh, okay, I won't call it Islamophobia, this anti-Muslim bigotry to use mm-hmm. your term, or or because of my skin color and you know everything because you know these Indians who were who were short or the Sikhs that are being yeah. short, they don't go and ask them what faith do you have. Of course, you know, it's a it's a skin color, right? And I just often uh, wonder that, you know, where are we going to go? <laughs> because if this is the, what the world is going to turn into, a increasingly crazy place. Right, and we're sandwiched in between, right? So we're trying to kind of speak to the Islamic extremists who will attack us. And now we're trying to uh, stop ourselves being attacked in the West. And, and that's the plight of many people that are liberal of Muslim background. You kind of have nowhere to get any footing because you're sandwiched between two extremes that hate you. Absolutely. And I've seen you getting into these big fights on Twitter. I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't participate in them because I'm just, uh, you know, kind of wary of people because if the, the moment you say something, they come after you and yeah. like rapidly and start, you know, attacking and pouncing. And I'm just so sick of this uh, social media hate. But I've seen you engage in that. I mean, and, and when they were accusing you of, um, you know, bigotry or something like that, and I just laughed and I said, you know, here's a person who has the guts and courage to talk about the fact that she has left religion or is not interested in religion. And she's being called whatever, a bigot, or I don't know what are the names you're being called. And I'm surprised, you know, because this is what's happening. 
Yeah, yeah, it comes from all angles, and and you get a lot of it too. So, so before you know, before you have to uh, go, I just want to hear a bit more about uh, the attack that happened on on you in Pakistan in 2014. I'm just going to read a a quick quote that I saw in the Friday Times about it. As a barrage of bullets let loose by his attackers were piercing into his vehicle, Rumi managed to slump between the seats of his car and lay motionless for seven minutes, giving his assassins enough reason to leave the scene satisfied that they had accomplished their task. Now that just gives me like, it's, I cannot even fathom what, a person's mind frame is like in that situation. So, so can you just walk me through that? Yes, I could walk you through that. It, uh, you know, again, it has been exactly three years. You know, it happened in the end of March and um, in 2014, and the sound and and speed and, and the, uh, of bullets came completely. Uh, you know, obviously, it was a surprise attack. And I was at the back seat, so I'm, I'm, I'm in a way lucky that I was not on the front seat because they were targeting the front, uh, you know, uh, people who were at the front. You know, there was my my colleague who was driving the car and there was a guard uh, whom I had hired because of these threats from the Taliban. Mm. And my, the, the guy was driving and, you know, he was he was more than a colleague or a, or, a, or a staffer. I mean, he was like a friend, almost my family. Yeah. And he died on the spot. That's the so heartbreaking. Yes, it is. It is, and and so you know, I luckily my mind kind of worked uh, in a really uh, you know uh, interesting way. I think the self defense or the instinct really worked, and I within a flash of a second, I just ducked and I lay on the on the floor of the car, and you know at the back. And I just didn't move. I mean, I put my head, tried to move my head under the driver, uh, the driver's seat because I thought that if a bullet goes to my head, then I'm done with. <gasps> and what are, what is going through your mind while you're just lying there, like? I was, you know, I was terrified, but at the same time, I said, look, if I am able to protect my head, I will survive, okay? Maybe, you know, my, my legs and my hair, but my arms, a bullet goes through, maybe I'll get a new a new leg. I mean, that's what I was thinking. It's so, it's so crazy now, now that I think of. And I, and with these thoughts, I just, and then I said, I should just lay motionless and pretend to be dead. So... That happened, and you know, I just, uh, uh, you know, for at that time, I, I just lost faith in uh, in so many things, you know, in humans and in the world. I mean, I was, I just went through a big uh, trauma phase in of my course. life. It took, it took me. I mean, it's, it has taken me a long time to. Uh, you know, emerge out of that or, uh, you know, uh, but uh, thankfully I am uh, getting better with that. But, you know, my biggest worry now is not so much about myself. I don't really think that it's, it is my safety, uh, security. It is more to do with the fact that what if something happens to people who are associated with me, you know? Yeah. You, you know Pakistan and you know Saudi Arabia, you don't go alone, you go with friends, you go with a driver, you go with, you know, uh, other people, yeah. you, unlike the West where you drive alone to the grocery shop, you know, or, or you, you know, they, it's a more communal style of living mm-hmm. there. And I'm just worried that if like that young man, uh, my driver who died on the spot, if something else happens like that, what 
how would I forgive myself, you know? That's the kind of thing that really nags me, you know, now. But anyway, I think uh, it's over and I hope that I can uh, recover from it. I do want to go back to Pakistan at some point. I don't know when. Uh, but, you know, certainly not until I am completely sort of in the right frame of mind yeah. and not super paranoid. Of course, I can't imagine. I mean, I... I'm scared to go there and nothing like that has ever happened to me. Of course, you know, I've wherever I've worked in, in Pakistan, there have been bomb blasts very close by. So that kind of stuff just terrifies me. But there has never been a personal attack on me. So I can't even I can't even begin to imagine what that feels like. And I'm just I'm so sorry that that happened to you. You're very very brave and you continue to speak out you know there's there was an article saying that there was a direct message on twitter sent to you where they were saying that there would be another attack in a month yes yes there were there, there's all sorts of hate uh, messages that they keep on coming and you know one of the reasons that i I actually decided to move uh, here. You know, part in part, it was also driven by the fact that my two sisters live in the U.S. So mm-hmm. we just three siblings. So all of us are here now. So you know, my idea was that if I were to uh, come here, I, I'd at least have family and emotional support mm-hmm. at that time. But you know, uh, but. Uh, the messages on social media they triggered off and even when I came came here I said okay in a, in a couple of months in four or five months I'll go back and you know resume my life but then I continued getting these messages and these threats and it's with. real I mean you've experienced it's not just you know a, a threat on the internet many of us get them and we just kind of say okay okay this is just an idiot saying something stupid but you've actually lived through bullets being sprayed at your car so it is so real like I can't like how lucky I is can't. it that they didn't check that they had finished the job I know. It, is, it is it is lucky but let me uh, tell you this much never take these threats uh, lightly you know and uh, luckily you are not um, in a in a country where they have more access physical access to you mm. But, you know, these threats are, are, are can turn real. And as Mish, coming back to what we started from in Mashal Khan's case, look at how they turned real. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And in a moment, a mob was whipped up. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, even the politicians that have spoken up about the blasphemy laws were shot. And if you just look at the, the funeral of the guy that shot Governor Salman Tasir, Yes, it was filled with hundred, I think, a hundred thousand people or something, and there was rose petals being showered. Whereas this poor guy who got lynched for false blasphemy charges, you know, the the imam refused to lead his funeral prayers. This mm. so disturbing. This contrast to me It's really disturbing. Unfortunate, so unfortunate. Yes. Yeah. So I mean. I don't know. How do we pull ourselves out of this? How does Pakistan pull itself out of it? I mean, I read today that they have passed a bill that makes uh, reading Quran compulsory in school. Oh, yeah, you see, that's the that's the whole thing. I mean, you know, 
There's appeasement, appeasement, appeasement all the time. You can't try to appease mullahs. They're never yeah. going to be satisfied. They will never be satisfied. You need, le- like, we need less religion in schools, obviously. And now we just had this lynching and we're passing a bill that says more religion in schools. So I but, just... But, you know, even, let me tell you, even progressive Islamic scholars, you know, like Ramiji, he, uh, even he says... And and no wonder he's not in Pakistan. He's also living in Malaysia. Uh, he says that, you know, religious teaching should not start until children have finished their high school. He says it's a specialized field of knowledge. And theology, etc., requires a certain level of education. And he even says that all early education, you know, including primary and secondary, should be all secular. You yeah, know? that's great if there's an imam that says that. I mean, I don't know yeah. what else he says, but that is great. I think that's yeah, the kind so, of voice we need more of. Yes, exactly. So, you know, so my my aim in, in life now is to actually, you know, work with these voices and these people because, you know, we, we need to support them and we need to project their views because a lot of people... I mean, a lot of Muslims, Ainiya, when you would tell them that, oh, you know, I have left religion and I, it doesn't matter to me, you know, they would get immediately suspicious, right? Yeah, yeah of course. And, uh, and angry and, and judgmental. But, um, you know, if uh, your ideas find traction from people who are ostensibly preachers and believers. Yeah, that's a very effective way, I imagine, to yes, make yes. some small steps. Exactly. exactly. So, uh, yeah, I agree. Even same with ideas like uh, promoting Islamic reform, right? There's many atheists or ex-Muslims, even some of them, that are against this idea. Uh, They just think that, you know, we should try to, I don't know, convince people that religion isn't the way to go. But I just think that that's not in my idea, very effective because you're not going to deconvert everyone. So if you can find a pathway for people to go with, you know, ideas from their religion to just take a more peaceful path. I think that is the first step to take. Absolutely. Absolutely. I fully agree with you. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm just so shocked to hear your account of, of being <laughs> yeah. attacked. I, yeah, I know. It's yeah. Been, it's been a traumatic time but anyway thankfully it's over yeah it goes on well you know please continue speaking up on this i hear you spoke at the un as well about the dangers that journalists face and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i've been speaking here and there many places so you know i don't know that round but um and I'm glad that, you know, this is the good thing about being here in the West, that there are uh, so many warm and open-hearted and sensitive people, you know, who understand this issue and who want to help you and support you. So in that way, it has been a nice experience, you know. Yeah. Is this your first time living here in the West? Mm, I lived in the UK as a student. Okay, okay. My, uh, in my 20s. So I lived there four years and... But in the, no, I have not lived in the West. I've lived in East Asia. I've lived in Kosovo, which oh, is wow. Central Southern Europe, mm, but not in um, not in this West West as we understand okay, it. Okay, well, yeah, I mean that's got to be an interesting experience. I remember my moving to Karachi from Saudi was even that was a cultural shock. 
For sure. So, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that uh, also leaving uh, Pakistan and moving the other way would entail some sort of cultural shock, probably not shock, it's, but... But I think it's it's more of, uh, you know, leaving your work and your country. And, yeah, you, know, you leave everything behind. Yes, that's, that's, the more, that's more of a... Of a shock, but anyway, I'm now engaged more there. I mean, I'm editing a paper and I write there, so I found a way of re-engagement. Um, That's great. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's really sad that they can have that control over our lives, right? Like, I mean, nothing comparable ever has happened to me. I, I mean, but over your life and my life, in terms of, I cannot be comfortable to be non-anonymous. Of so. course, you can't. I mean, I would definitely not suggest you to ever risk that because <clears throat> because that's uh, that's unsafe in this in this uh, age. Right, so. even in the West, right? People in the West have been attacked by jihadis. So mm, people I mean, keep saying, "Well, why you're in Canada?" But come on, I mean, the Charlie Hebdo people were in France. Yeah. Absolutely, and and uh, you know, in 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 Britain, yeah, that the Emirates have been murdered, man. Yeah, yeah. So nowhere yeah. is really safe from that, and it really sucks that they can control people's lives mm. by fear. But uh, you know, as long as I think we keep speaking, you keep writing, you, I think you're we're doing our part to make some small change, maybe. Absolutely, absolutely. I fully agree with you. All right. Thank you so much again. And we must we must speak again. We'll do the debate or whatever. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time. Bye bye. And yeah, take care. Take care. Okay. Talking to you. Yeah, it was wonderful talking to you too. Well worth the wait of one year. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good, good. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help.